Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to, be, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? And now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendour of his coming. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved to the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. May our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed and word. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning with our Bibles open, may you also open our hearts, our ears, our minds, and by your Spirit teach us how we might love you more and how we might live in a broken world, knowing that there is much uh, that is there to trouble us including these difficult passages like the one we're looking at now. Lord, help us to see what your purpose is, that we might receive a blessing and an encouragement from you today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't be deceived. I can guarantee that within our church today, there will be a range of views about the end times? It's just one of those questions we like to ask, isn't it? Basically, the question is, what happens next? What happens next? When will Jesus return? What will be the signs of his coming? What about the Antichrist? Will he appear in our lifetimes? What happens next? Now, I have to warn you, some people get themselves into trouble by turning this into an obsession. They take all kinds of ideas from the internet or other places and get really wrapped up in what they think 
God's word says and what they see happening around them. But remember, remember this, when it comes to the end times, we are talking about the future. And there are lots of things about the future that we simply can't know. Even what the Bible does tell us in terms of prophecy is still limited by our ability to interpret God's word correctly. So we need to be very careful. Many of the suggestions that have come and gone over the past 2,000 years, in fact, Christians have developed rather a reputation for getting the end times wrong, which has unfortunately made us easy targets for jokesters and cartoonists. But the end times are coming, and the Antichrist is real. There will be a time of persecution, such as the world has not seen before Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead. We know this is true. The Bible makes it clear that there will be a man of lawlessness who appears in the last days and deceives many. So this is the challenge of God's word today. We need to heed the warnings without being hasty. We need to heed the warnings without being hasty. We need to prepare for the coming of our Lord Jesus, but not be obsessed by it. And so I have four points to share with you today in which God's word teaches us to be careful not to be deceived. First, don't be deceived by the timing of Christ's return. Second, don't be deceived by the man of lawlessness Third, don't be deceived by a counterfeit God. And finally, don't doubt the power of God to save you through the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. These are my four points for today. First of all then, don't be deceived by the timing of Christ's return. Verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report or letter supposed to have come from us saying that the day of the Lord has already come because it hasn't, not yet anyway. At least the end of the day of the Lord hasn't come yet. This is important. When new ideas concerning the end times make their way into the church, you need to maintain a healthy scepticism. A healthy scepticism. So in verse 1, Paul asks or indeed urges these Christians to stay calm and not be hasty. Don't be swept up in the heat of the moment because this is how false teachers gain a foothold in the church by stirring up our emotions rather than our thoughts and our minds. So, for example, it seems that someone in Thessalonica had been stirring up trouble by saying that the day of the Lord had already come. Well, you can imagine how that went down. What do you mean the day of the Lord has already come? Hasn't our faith saved us? Are you saying we've been left behind? The Thessalonians were a church under pressure. They longed to see Christ's return because they were suffering for their faith. Their persecution was severe, and so it's entirely reasonable that they wanted to know what happens next. When will Jesus come back? What will it be like when he gets here? How will he show up? But as they pondered these things, a rumour went around the church that the day of the Lord had already come, and somehow they'd missed the boat. And that this was Paul's own teaching, so it was being claimed. 
No wonder the congregation was shocked. And it prompts Paul to write this second letter to the Thessalonians that we have today in our Bibles to quash the rumours, to sort out the error. It's even possible that some of the error was caused by his first letter and what he says there about the coming of the Lord. Misapplied, misunderstood, needing to be corrected. I once had a Jehovah's Witness friend some years ago now who told me that Jesus came back to earth in 1914, although not in bodily form. He's presently invisible. And he told me the end of the end won't happen until the last person born in 1914 dies. Well, I'd like to know how they arrived at that conclusion. So I looked up the teachings of the Jehovah's Witness on the end times. I actually bought a book on it. I checked uh, JW facts in just checking again these details. This is what I found. Originally, the Jehovah's Witnesses taught that Jesus would return in the year 1873 or very quickly adjusted to 1874. But when that didn't happen, they went for 1878. And when that didn't happen, they went for their main date, which is October 1914. And when that didn't happen, they went for 1917 or soon after. And when that didn't happen, they went for 1925. And when that didn't happen, they went for any day soon. And when that didn't happen, they went for 1941. And when that didn't happen, they went for 1975. And when that didn't happen, they began to teach their current lie, which is that the end of the world will happen as soon as the last person born in 1914 dies. I ask you, how many chances do you need before you get a prophecy right? The J-dubs have had eight or nine goes already and they've missed every time. So don't be deceived. When Jesus returns, the world will know about it. He won't come back quietly or secretly. And he won't appear only to a select few. We'll all know about it. This is what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. When Jesus returns, everyone will know about it, from the least to the greatest. Everyone will know. It'll be a global event. In the meantime... Don't be alarmed by sensational claims about the end times. I urge you today, heed the warnings, but don't be hasty. Stand firm in your faith and continue to do the good works which God has prepared in advance for you to do. Get on with your life, love the Lord, love his people, reach out in the world with the good news that you have in the gospel. Continue to do the good works which God has prepared in advance for you to do. Let's now look at my second point. Don't be deceived by the man of lawlessness. I want to read from verse 3. Paul says here, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man doomed to destruction. So then, what two things have to happen before Christ returns? Number one, the rebellion. And number two, the man of lawlessness must be revealed. 
First, the rebellion describes a time of apostasy which I want to suggest will hit the church. A time of apostasy that will hit the church. The word rebellion is the word apostasy, falling away. So it must be affecting those who believe or had believed or claimed to believe the gospel. A time of apostasy that will hit the church, a time perhaps not unlike the days we're living in now. We see sort of evidences of that happening in many churches. And then the man of lawlessness, I take it, is the Antichrist. Whoever he is, he's a real historical figure, someone yet to be born or perhaps someone yet to make his appearance. I don't know. But when he does appear, Paul tells us that he will be a person who mocks and yet mimics Christ. Someone who both mocks and yet mimics Christ. He'll pretend to be God while opposing and exalting himself over the true God. This is no ordinary person, is it? This is sort of describing a godlike man, a man of lawlessness. And I wish that Paul had given us just a little more detail about these things, but he doesn't. So we'll have to look elsewhere for help, and one place that I find myself drawn to is Daniel chapter 12, the whole chapter, but just looking at a little bit Today, Daniel chapter 12 says that before the end, the abomination that causes desolation must first be set up in the temple. And when Paul talks of the temple, I take it he's talking about the church. There are other alternative interpretations here, but if this is going to be a rebellion within the church, it's likely the man of lawlessness might arise as a man within the church. But the archangel Michael will protect God's people and then the end will come. So this is just Daniel chapter 12, verses, the first couple of verses there of Daniel chapter 12. Daniel writes, At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of great distress, such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. So there is a warning, but there is a great encouragement as well, isn't there, if you take those points together. And I want to compare that to what Paul says in our passage today, because there are similarities. For example, in verse 4, we're told the man of lawlessness will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Wow. This is a spiritual battle. Already won on the cross, might I say. The battle is won on the cross. Jesus broke in to the end of time, actually broke into the center and, and, and brought the end of days in early, and yet there is this outworking that we're told we must expect before Christ returns again. So this is a spiritual battle. The details are sparse, but the outline is there. And yet even the great Augustine, who lived like 1,500 years ago, said 
He couldn't be sure who this man of lawlessness is or even when he might appear. And I like Augustine's approach. Augustine said, We who do not know what the Thessalonians knew desire to understand what the apostle was talking about. But even with hard work, we're not able, especially as his meaning is made still more obscure by what he adds. And then Augustine concludes with these words, I frankly confess I do not know what he means. So if someone like St. Augustine is saying, I'm not sure what we're talking about here, how it fits together, let's be very cautious ourselves. The verses which so perplexed Augustine are verses 5 to 8, where Paul speaks of an earlier conversation that he's had with the Thessalonians, but he doesn't fill in the details for us in the letter. He said something to them, and he's writing about it to them, but the details are not spelled out. And so it's like listening to one side of a telephone conversation. The yes, uh uh-huh, mm-hmm, okay, see you there. Well, where are we seeing you? I don't know. What's the situation? And he got half the story. And Paul says, don't you remember that when I was with you, I used to tell you these things? What things? And now you know what is holding him back. No, I don't. So that he may be revealed at the proper time, the time ordained by God. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth and destroy by the splendor of his coming. Like I said, I wish Paul had given us just a little more detail to go on here. But it is what it is. So cautiously, I've got five points based on what Paul says about the man of lawlessness. Cautiously. First point, the rebellion will be a time of unprecedented spiritual darkness beginning within the church. The gospel will be compromised from within. The truth will be exchanged for a lie. Fake Christianity will abound. Perhaps state-sponsored Christianity will flourish. And the lawless one will take advantage of it. That's in verses 3 and 4. The rebellion will be a time of unprecedented spiritual darkness. But the gospel won't be extinguished. The church will still flourish, the true church. Second, the secret power of lawlessness is already at work in the world, even back when Paul wrote in verse 7. We see that in so many ways. We look around the world. The fact is that when we're left to ourselves, we we go wobbly. It's really by the grace of God that we are sustained in our understanding and belief in the truth. The secret power of lawlessness is already at work in the world, but God has so far restrained that secret power of lawlessness, perhaps by the hand of strong angels like Michael in Daniel chapter 12. That restraining angel in Daniel could also be working, restraining the power of lawlessness in our world. This is a spiritual battle. Third, the man of lawlessness will arise at this time. In these circumstances, a time ordained by God, nonetheless. And he will be very deceptive. His lies will sound like the truth. 
He will divide us by hatred in the name of love. Love is love. That's a satanic statement. His lawlessness will seem like good logic. But his works will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displaying all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders. So he'll look like the saviour, but he'll smell like sin. And even the elect will need to be very careful not to be deceived. Verses 9 and 10. And fourth, the narrative of the end times will be a battle for the truth. Isn't it interesting so much these days people talk about the narrative instead of the truth? What's the narrative? Well, the narrative is whatever I say is true and your narrative is whatever you say is true. I notice in America at the moment, you know, that poor man who uh, has been ridiculed and arrested four years in jail uh, for breaking into the um, Capitol January the 6th. Now they release the tapes showing the same man being led through the building by the police, praying to God the Father, being heard that uh, that he should leave the building and rounding up the people to walk out of the building. I heard his um, lawyer telling how he had pleaded with the government whose undeniable duty it is to share any exculpatory evidence with the one who has been arrested so that it could be brought to the case in his defence and inexplicably the government refused to release those details so that the judge had no evidence in support of that man. And that's in America. The narrative of the end times will be a battle for the truth. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. This is our postmodern world where the truth is rejected and Christian values are despised. And fifth, despite his very great power, the Antichrist will fail. The man of lawlessness is doomed to destruction because Jesus is Lord, and that's an end to it. Paul's wisdom about the end times is entirely consistent with the Old Testament prophets, the teachings of Jesus, and the book of Revelation. All fits together, all presenting the same picture. But as for the actual man of lawlessness and when exactly he will come, all I can say is keep watching, heed the warning, but don't be hasty. Be prepared for the coming rebellion. The spirit of lawlessness is at work in the world today, but don't be obsessed by it. As Jesus said, sufficient to the day are the worries thereof. The main point of Paul's writing so far has been actually to comfort these Christians 
who, remember, were feeling troubled by false teachings about the end times. They were worried that they might have missed out on Christ's return, and that's why Paul is writing all of this. It's an alarming thought. What if we've been left behind? What if our faith wasn't sufficient to save us and, and, and all our hopes are dashed? Well, Paul says, don't panic, and he gives them this common-sense counsel. Don't be deceived by the timing of Christ's return and don't be deceived by the man of lawlessness. Rather, find out what pleases the Lord and make every effort to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Do this and you'll be able to face whatever challenges life may throw at you. Now, my next point is then don't be deceived by a counterfeit gospel. Don't be deceived by a counterfeit gospel. I want to look at verses 9 to 12 here. Let's read uh, from verse 9 again. The coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of Satan, displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles, signs and wonders, and in every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Don't be deceived by a counterfeit gospel. So I ask myself, what are the twistings of the truth that I'm being asked to believe in and accept today? Because if there's one thing I've learnt about Satan is that his lies always sound to me very convincing at first, especially when I'm feeling tempted. They have a way of appealing to my heart and making sin sound good. And do you notice that Satan's lies are often hidden within seemingly biblical arguments? Remember how every time Satan tempted Jesus, he quoted the Bible. Remember that? He quoted the Bible every time, three times to Jesus. Even Satan knows his Bible. So what are the twistings of God's word that I'm being asked to believe in today? I can think of quite a few. I've just got three for you to reflect on this morning. I think a big problem, a big one, is the lie of tolerance. We're waking up to this now, but this is the lie that we must tolerate all kinds of wickedness and keep our opinions to ourselves. It's a very clever lie. You need to be polite. You need to tolerate difference. The moment you try to talk about it, guess what people will call you? Intolerant, <laughs> bigot, narrow-minded. Our tolerance is supposed to be about respect. That is respecting others who hold different opinions of you, agreeing to disagree, as it were. But tolerance has now become a tool of power to enforce the lie and silence the truth, even by law, if necessary which is surely another form of wickedness. The lie of tolerance has become Satan's lie. Another lie, a big one that's a great problem today, is the lie of personal autonomy. This is the lie that I can be anything I want. Oh, you can be anything you want. Not true. We set people up for a terrible disappointment when we tell them that lie. I define my own identity. I define my own truth. I decide what's good for me and you can't tell me otherwise because I'm personally autonomous. Oh, how I love and worship me. 
This narcissism, this spirit of entitlement is pushing many young people to despair because it doesn't work in reality. You knock up against people who have different views. You find that so much in life you can't control. It's another one of Satan's lies and it denies our own God-given humanity. To be human is to be in relationship with God and with others and to honour those relationships. And love is often to surrender that autonomy for the good of others, even our enemies. A third example of the lie is this thing called social justice. By social justice, I mean the ideology of activism, which is a kind of Christianity without Christ. It is a pseudo-religion. These people are experts in seeing the speck in other people's eyes, but they never take issue with the plank in their own eyes. They love the values of diversity, inclusion and equity. They feel intensely the need to save the world from climate change and Christians and gender stereotypes and Christians and colonialism and Christians and hate speech and Christians. And by the way, did I mention Christians? Another one of Satan's lies. It's a gospel without Christ. A hope of salvation without a saviour. Tolerance, personal autonomy, social justice, they're all part of the rebellion. They're a worldview that denies the existence of the true and living God. And yet they're not very far from the tree. They're all distortions of the gospel. They speak of justice, so does the gospel. They speak of love, so does the gospel. So many ways. Still fighting the same battle. But do you notice that in this passage we are made to understand that God is still in control even when Satan is doing his worst? That's the irony. There's, there's nothing that Satan can do without God's permission. And that can sound shocking at first, but it makes sense of the fact that God alone is God. So look at verse 11. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie and so that all will be condemned who have not believed the truth but have delighted in wickedness. God sends them a powerful delusion. So God is still in control. It is God who judges, but at the same time, it is our own personal choices that get us into trouble. We're not puppets. We are people. So God can rightly say the wicked will be proven guilty by their own choices, just as God ordained it to be. God is still in control. Don't be deceived by a counterfeit gospel. Now, my final point today is a positive one. Don't doubt the power of God to save you. If you want to rest secure in your faith and not be unsettled or alarmed by the bad things taking place in our world today, then you need to hear this. In verse 13, Paul returns to the main point of his letter, which is Christian encouragement. I want to read this again from verse 13. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord and sisters, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved 
And how shall you be saved? Through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. And Paul says, He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the teachings we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. Well, there's quite a bit in there, but many other troubling things in our world today. Things that make me wonder, is the rebellion already underway? Have we gone over the edge? Is this the time? Maybe it is. Just don't be hasty. The spiritual state of the church, certainly in the West, is dire and getting worse. Churches in Africa and Asia doing well. If there is a falling away, it's not global yet. Long-held doctrines, though, are being rejected in the West by church leaders, replaced by this new ideology. It's very grieving. I was sharing with the prayer group yesterday in Canada. Very uh, shocking story. A a boy, a teenage boy, a schoolboy, going to St. Joseph's Catholic School in Canada, the school had allowed gender diversity, so boys were going into the girls' toilets. And they were upset, so the boy got out his Bible and began to complain on behalf of the girls about the boys in their toilets. And he was uh, chastised and sent home and told that he wasn't allowed back on the premises of the school. So then he went back to the school the next day and they put the police on him and arrested him, cuffed him and told him he's not allowed now. He can't can't go back to school. That's in a Catholic school. A boy opening the Bible and saying, what is a man and what is a woman in God's word? and been locked down, shut down, arrested, and prevented from going back to school. Isn't that the work of the Antichrist? The spirit of lawlessness at work in the churches, in our world today. Many of the troubling things in our world. Many. Then you've got the globalisation of world power, the evidence of corruption in high places, the sexualisation of children, the culture of death, which is so dark and depressing. All of these things point to a growing spirit of lawlessness in the world today. But instead of drawing on the negatives in our passage, notice Paul encourages the Thessalonians what to do, to stand firm in their faith, and he gives them good gospel reasons to do so. He says, first, because God loves you. Do you see? You are loved by the Lord. God loves you. Stand firm in your faith. Second, because from the beginning, God chose you for salvation. Stand firm in your faith. Third, because God called you through the gospel. Stand firm in your faith. And fourth, because by believing, you will share in the glory of Jesus Christ. Stand firm in your faith. 
God's love is so big and so mighty that it stretches from eternity past to eternity future and he can certainly embrace you. If you're a Christian today, then you'll know that God's love gives you wings, wings of comfort, wings of hope, wings of assurance, wings of faith. This is what Paul wants you to remember today, that your saviour loves you and it's the truth that matters most of all. Just be wise and do what you can to guard the truth and protect yourself from counterfeits and deceptions. How can you do this? In conclusion today, pray. Oh, we need to pray. Pray that the Lord protect us. We ask God to help us stand firm in our faith, not be deluded or distracted from the truth. Pray and learn. Spend time learning and knowing God, learning about him, his character, his purposes, rather than being unsettled or alarmed by sensationalist rumours. Believe. Yes, believe. Trust in the Lord Jesus' ability to overthrow the man of lawlessness because Jesus is Lord. You've got to believe in his power and authority his victory on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. Be watchful. Yes, be watchful. Be alert for evidence of lawless behaviour in your own life and take a firm stand against it. It's easy to point the finger at others, but what about lawlessness in your life or in mine? And finally, be wise like the five virgins in the kids' talk today. Make sure you're ready to meet your king when he comes. Isn't that what matters most? Don't be obsessed by the end times, but be obsessed with Jesus' love for you. Yes, the rebellion is real. Yes, the man of lawlessness is real, and God knows we can have a real tough time of it. The Lord is with us. You won't be left behind if you stand firm in your faith, holding on to the gospel you first received. So then, in conclusion, don't be deceived by the timing of Christ's return. Don't be deceived by the man of lawlessness. Don't be deceived by a counterfeit gospel. And don't doubt God's ability to save you through the victory of his son, Jesus Christ. And now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loves us and by his grace gave us eternal encouragement and good hope, encourage your hearts and strengthen you in every good deed. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let us sing now a response song together. Thank you, music team.